Hi, welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. And today we're going to talk about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. So Michael, tell me, what's your first experience you've had with Bitcoin? So my first experience I had with Bitcoin was actually in 2012, uh, where I almost, almost, I have to kick myself for this because I did not buy any. I almost bought one Bitcoin for, I think, like $200, but it seemed really expensive at the time, given it was like $100 earlier in the year. Um, so after going through several warnings, several layers, where every time I clicked to the next level, it just told me I was going to lose all my money. And I was like, ah, rent's like $500, and I'm about to just put $200 and just throw it away into this, this stupid thing called Bitcoin. And so I ended up not buying in 2012. But I, I knew of it then. That was kind of my first, my first time knowing of it. And then, of course, like everybody else in the whole world, I did watch the rally in 2017 as it touched $20,000. That's right. I did not buy it $200. <laughs> it was too expensive at $200. <laughs> Um, as it touched $20,000 five years later. I'll say I have a very similar story. I remember I was in law school and I had a friend, uh, we were roommates, and he was like, you know, oh, you heard this cryptocurrency thing? Should we buy some? And I was like, this sounds really dumb. And I just, you know, didn't think about it again. And then I think um, later on, and maybe, yeah, it was 2012, 2013, I remember there was some breakout and they had a guy on CNBC and they, you know, they asked him, you know, how's Microsoft going to do? How's Facebook going to do? How's Bitcoin going to do? And he's like, this is not not a thing this is not a real thing i was like okay he seems to be legit you know um so i didn't get in there and i just kind of put it in the back of my mind but then like you said in 2017 it kind of really exploded onto the scene that's where i kind of really started noticing it so yeah so bitcoin is is obviously very new it, it began in 20 uh 2009 was the very first year where bitcoin first started and it traded for less than a penny per bitcoin and, you know, and, but like anything, nobody can predict the future. So I think especially, um, you know, the old guys with white hair that are running Goldman Sachs or, you know, or Citigroup, they're going to find a reason to tell people not to invest in it because it's new. It's scary. They really don't have anything to base it on. Um, but the one thing I think we can all learn from this is absolutely nobody can ever predict the future. So I think it's important this, I think Bitcoin's a classic lesson is to make sure, you know, you understand what you're willing to lose. Um, but, you know, you got to also be willing to take some major risks or some risk sometimes. And if you're going to make some major gains. Yeah. So, so tell me, Michael, when, so when did you eventually get in? Did you, did you ever buy Bitcoin then? So I bought some Bitcoin in January of 2018 as it was crashing. Okay. I bought at about 8500 compared to the US dollar. It was trading one Bitcoin for, uh, you know, one Bitcoin was $8,500. And I bought like 0. 0.06 Bitcoins. So, you know, I think I put about $500 into it. I put $500 into three different cryptocurrencies. I had a, a good return on one of my side hustles. And I said, okay, I'm going to take this $1,500 and put it into cryptocurrencies. And... There was so much information, misinformation, so many talking heads and people that wanted you to invest in this, that, and the other. Actually, I'm sorry I lied. It was not 1500 It was actually a full $2,000. So I took $2,000 and I decided to div divvy it up into four different cryptocurrencies. I bought $500 worth of Bitcoin, $500 worth of Ethereum, $500 worth of Litecoin, and put another $500 into 
an initial coin offering called R2B2. <laughs> I didn't think this was a real thing until it, Michael told me this. <laughs> it's, it's a real thing. Um, and uh, that $500, as far as I'm concerned, is gone into thin air. It's as if I flushed it down the toilet. It's just, it's gone. But who would have known? Who could have right, known? You know, but I knew that that $2,000 too, when I put that in there, I said, this is a high risk investment. Maybe this comes with something, maybe it doesn't. I go, as I put that $2,000 in, I said, I'm willing to lose this entire $2,000. So when I did that and had that mindset going in, it lessened the blow, you know, 18 months later when I realized that $500 was never coming back. So how did you decide on those particular cryptocurrencies? Uh, randomness. Those, you know, there were three, the first three, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Litecoin were the most popular and still are the most popular cryptocurrencies out there. And the last one was just, it was hot on the internet at the time. It was one of these ICOs that was, you know, it was a big deal. And it was, a, I don't know, they, they, good marketing campaign, I guess, ultimately. And I actually had a few, I actually had a friend, uh, a couple of friends that did not know each other that both were getting into it. So okay. I said, okay, let's put $500 in and see what happens. But I think, I think, it, you know, really lessened the blow at this point, that $500 is gone. Um, but I also knew it at the time that I was going to possibly lose this $500. Kind of like my day trading is today. Anytime I enter a trade and I usually have a risk between $100 and $150, I give up that money. I know when I put that money in, it's like it's like I'm putting it in the pot on a poker table. That $150 is gone. There's no, oh, I'm so invested in it. I have to, you know, I got to get it in. Nope, that's it. That's gone. That money is now gone. It's no longer belongs to me. If it happens to come back to me later, great. If it happens to come back to me tenfold later, even better. But I have to be willing to to separate myself from it. So I was able to to separate myself from that money. So it is gone. Okay. So so, so after that initial investment in 2018, so did I guess, can you tell me what happened to your positions later on? Did you, did you sell? Did you add? Did you go in and out? What's, what happened next? All right, so the R2V2, obviously, what I just said, it, it disappeared. It's gone. Um, so I continued to hold my Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum positions to the bottom. Um, so I bought Bitcoin at about 8500 It bottomed in the 3000s. So I lost more than half of it at, at the bottom. Um, as I continued to study Bitcoin a little bit, read up on it, kind of understood what blockchain is, and study the pattern. How has it traded historically? You know, the 2010 or the 2017 ramp up to $20,000 was actually not unique in Bitcoin's history. It was just such a big number, $20,000. It's like when the Dow, it's now approaching 30,000, right? So it's a big, big number with a bunch of zeros, but it's actually not that significant in the grand scheme of things because Bitcoin has already had these huge runups. It went from less than a penny to $2,000, to $200. You know, I met a man in Hawaii I, I, when I was on vacation in Hawaii a couple years ago. And, you know, we kind of, you know, you introduce yourself. Hey, what do you do? He goes, oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an early Bitcoin investor. That's it. All he, did was, all he did was get into Bitcoin. But he it's also, it's funny, too, that he got in so early. Like, he went out for a champagne dinner with lobster when Bitcoin hit $2,000 because he, he was rich. He got rich when Bitcoin hit $2,000. So it just shows you, and I, and I know he continued to hold a position. I don't know all of his ins and outs, but like 
the early investors were celebrating when it was going up, you know, to a couple hundred dollars to a couple thousand dollars. So the, the run might be over, but it might not be either. In the grand scheme of things, I think Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin does have a very useful purpose in, on this planet. I don't think Americans necessarily see it as much because we have a very stable dollar. The U.S. dollar is kind of the standard of the world right now, um, but it may not always be. So, so what factors do you think would play into like Bitcoin, you know, increasing in value over time? Like, what do you think would drive that? So I think, I think we need to dive into, all right, so. You step back. We want to talk about what Bitcoin is, maybe the history of Bitcoin for the, for the listeners today. In terms of longevity of Bitcoin, what is money? I think that's the question we need to ask right now. Cryptocurrency, it's a currency, crypto online currency. We all know what currency is. Currency is money. What is money? Ultimately, what is money, right? And it's very, I hear it from a lot of people that I do, you know, interact with from time to time. And as, as soon as I mention Bitcoin, they go, oh, funny money. I'm like, okay, maybe it is. But currencies are not as stable. Currencies around the world are not as stable as the U.S. dollar. Um, China is very well known for devaluing its currency. Uh, the crisis in Venezuela over the past couple years. I mean, there was one day people went to bed and woke up the next morning with a third or 25, a quarter to a third of their initial savings left because of, of this massive inflation. Anytime that, uh, anytime that money can be controlled by a central element, such as a central government, there is potential for manipulation, such as Venezuela. They just went and printed massive amounts of money. So imagine that. Imagine you go to bed tonight with $100,000 in the bank and you wake up in the morning and you have $25,000 in the bank and there's literally nothing you can do about it. So, so I mean, I, I have this poor people in Venezuela, but I mean, that aside, I mean, maybe potentially instead of putting in Bitcoin, could they put it in some gold or some, you know, Pokemon cards or, you know, some other physical asset? Why, why, I, I guess what makes differentiates a physical asset from say a cryptocurrency, you know, and I, I guess they both have value. Is it just the tradability of it or is the ease of, you know, currency exchange people will accept it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get a little technical here. The International Monetary Fund uh, defines money. Uh, it has to reach three critical criteria. It has to be one, a store of value. Two, it has to be a medium of exchange. And then lastly, it needs to be a unit of measure. All right, so this sounds a little technical, but at the end of the day, we can look at each one of those. The U.S. dollar. If you put fifty dollars in your bank account tonight odds are that $50 is going to be there in a week for you and still be worth about $50 and still be able to buy you 100 oranges or, you know, something of that nature. Um, it also needs to be a medium of exchange. So that means that you can't just buy one thing with it. Uh, Bitcoin does actually meet that criteria, just like the U.S. dollar does. You know, you can go to Kmart. No, they're out of business. <laughs> you can go to Walmart or Starbucks or Target and you can spend your U.S. dollars and buy goods. Um, so I can't take my bricks of gold or my Pokemon cards and, and trade them for milk or oranges. Exactly. So gold, is, is, as it is a store of value, is not a medium of exchange. Um, so then the last criteria is a unit of measure. Um, so we can say that you know a gallon of milk is $4. Three dollars, depending on how organic you want to go. So we're. Oh, I love that organic milk. It's great, <laughs> delicious. <laughs> so if you get a gallon of milk for three to four dollars, then you can also go and buy a gallon of soda for two dollars. 
So it's kind of you have this unit of measure. You can tell that, okay, milk is more valuable than soda based on the dollar value. Once you have all three of those criteria met, the International Monetary Fund says, yes, you have money. So given Bitcoin is a little more volatile than the U.S. dollar, but a little less volatile than, you know, perhaps Chinese money or Venezuelan money. Uh, and it's not completely out of the ordinary for a large scale first world country uh, in the grand scheme of things. If we look back at the uh, 50s and 60s, the British pound used to be the standard of the world before the U.S. dollar became the standard. The British pound was there. It actually traded at about $2.40 for every one British pound. And now the exchange rate is, is a lot closer. So, you know, things do change over time. So, so the medium of exchange example, so does it, you think it has to be widely accepted? So for instance, you know, I can't go, or maybe I can, I, I'm sure there's some places that do take Bitcoin, you know, if I want to buy a gallon of milk, but I don't know if I, if I go to Walmart today with, you know, my Bitcoin wallet, can I, can I get some milk or, you know, what, what does that mean exactly? So that's where Bitcoin is in its infancy. That's the one thing it does. It's not a huge medium of exchange, but it is accepted and it's become, it's becoming more widely accepted. Um, there are several places, several Starbucks stores actually these days that will accept Bitcoin. Um, political candidates will actually accept Bitcoin donations. Um, and there's also a lot of stores, I believe it's Overstock, started accepting Bitcoin and cryptocurrency uh, payments in the past year or so. So there's it, it is in its infancy, but there are multiple places. You can't, it's not just one place at this point. I hear that, you know, if you get your computer hacked, you know, those hackers will, will accept some Bitcoin, I think, you know, and uh, I think I've heard, you know, people also criticize me unfairly, you know, for drug dealing, you know, it seems Bitcoin is the optimal medium of exchange for that type of thing over the internet, you know. How much drug dealing gets you know, is exchanged for $100 bills. Oh, I'm sure. It's, I think most $100 bills, it's a strange fact. I didn't realize this, but like the $100 bill is like the most commonly printed denomination. But if you look in your wallet, how many $100 bills will you find? Not very many. <laughs> Turns out they're very popular. It's, it's certain, uh, oh man, Michael's taking out his wallet here. He's just flipping through the $100 bills here. <laughs> I have three 20s. I have a five to ten. So there you go. I don't even have a hundred dollar bill on me today. <laughs> the most popular one. I have I have seventy five dollars and not a single. So I, I don't even have a hundred dollars. So, so okay. So <laughs> backing backing up a step. You know, you, you said it was kind of volatile, right? Um, I, I guess in terms of an investment, yeah. You know, I don't. You know, people there are or there are currency exchange people that invest in different currencies and, and going back and forth and doing forex. But um, in terms of cryptocurrency, to me. It almost seems like it's moving like a stock, like it, it moves, you know, it has those swings and, and maybe you know, it can move up and it can move down. So that there it seems more like a potential investment vehicle rather than, you know, I'm going to invest in whatever currency I think will be higher tomorrow in, in you know, normal countries currency. So, yes, I think a lot of people do hold Bitcoin for the long term. I saw statistics this week and I think it's worth noting uh, that we are recording this on February 16th, 2020. What's the current Bitcoin price as we as we record this? So I'm, I'm to, re compared to U.S. dollars. So I'm gonna refresh my computer. This is exactly at 2:29 p.m. Eastern Time, and Bitcoin is trading at nine thousand seven hundred eighty-one dollars and fifty-eight cents. You can get one Bitcoin for just under ten grand. Okay, just under ten grand. 
And so, but it's been a lot higher. We talked about it earlier. It was down at 20, it was up at 20,000. It's been down to 3,000 since then. And it's kind of been in this channel, very wide channel between 20 and 3 ever since. So as a, as an investment, you can make an investment, but you know, you just gotta, you gotta realize that it could go back to 3,000, go back to 1,000. And so I wouldn't put all my eggs in this basket. I am currently holding 0.1 Bitcoin. Okay, I am a current owner, and I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'm a long-term Bitcoin bull. I believe Bitcoin is here to stay. I think especially in the international world. Like, look at, let's compare uh, Western Union. Do you know how much it costs to send money internationally via Western Union That's right expensive. now? It's very expensive. You can It can cost you 10% on each end. You might give up 20% of that transaction to Western Union, your money out of the United States into, say, China or Venezuela. Those are a couple of the countries we've already talked about. So, But Bitcoin, you could essentially transfer it to a wallet and then take that and then take that, take it out of that wallet and transfer it into local currency wherever you are in the world. And then you just pay a flat fee, kind of like trading stocks. A lot of times what stocks are usually trade for $5 or a lot of them are free right now, free, free commissions. But, you know, you five or a $10 commission to transfer your money from Bitcoin into the local currency. So, so there's a variety of, I mean, we're focusing on Bitcoin, but I mean, I guess the, the argument for cryptocurrency could apply to the, to the rest of the, the current, the rest of the cryptocurrencies out there. Um, I get, but I guess, you know, uh, you know, Bitcoin is like, the most dominantly used or the one that's, you know, has prominence, but, um, I guess I, you know, there's some interesting things about Bitcoin. You know, so I've heard that, you know, there's a limited supply of Bitcoin. Is that going to cause a problem in the future? You know, or there's a limited supply of Bitcoins being created, and then there's some Bitcoins that just sit vacant in wallets. You know, that seems kind of strange. You know, for a currency, you know, to be adopted that would be that has these kind of issues with it. I don't necessarily know those are issues. How much cash is sitting in people's bank accounts right now? how much cash is sitting in your savings account or my checking account. You know, I think there's a lot of money that sits out there unused. Bitcoin, there is actually more holders than there are traders. So I think I've, I've had something that 60 to 70% of Bitcoin has been stationary since that $20,000 run off. Oh, wow. <laughs> so most people are sitting on their Bitcoin and just holding it for the future. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there is I invested into Ethereum and Litecoin. I when I cashed both of those out, I cashed both of those out in 2018 for about a 50% loss. And I took all of that money and put it into Bitcoin. And then I sold my Bitcoin actually as the price kind of collapsed after it ran up to $14,000 towards the end of last year. And so of my $2,000, I basically had about eight hundred nine hundred dollars left of it so i lost about half of it you know five hundred dollars into that ico the initial coin offering that never came to anything ethereum and litecoin have never come close to their highs again all most of the altcoins have not come close to those initial highs that they met in uh in 2017 where bitcoin bitcoin just seems to have the uh the longevity the staying power i think it i think people trust it a little more because there's no central there's no, nothing central about it i think mm. that's that's one of the great things about bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is it is not as easily i can't say it can't be manipulated 
there's been plenty of cases of manipulation, but it cannot be as easily manipulated as um, something like a general ledger at the Bank of America. So, so and I, again, I don't, I don't know if you know this, but like, is there a limit to how many Bitcoin transactions that can happen, you know, in a minute or a time frame? You know, for instance, dollars, banks can fly dollars across borders. You know, you can commit, you know, do trades on the stock market, you know, in, you know, tenths of a second, right? Is, is there a limitation that, you know, if there's only so much Bitcoin and if everyone wants to use it all at once, does that cause the system to just, you know, freeze or what, what is it? Was there any problem there? There is no limit to the amount of transactions that can be conducted with Bitcoin. And each Bitcoin, I believe, can be divvied up into like eight decimal places. So you can, you don't have to always trade or buy things in full Bitcoins, you know. Mm -hmm. We might at one point in the future buy things with, you know, one one millionth of a bitcoin and so that i don't necessarily the biggest issue right now is uh, it doesn't process as quickly where the us dollar especially using visa and mastercard those transactions process in milliseconds whereas a lot of the transactions on bitcoin they do take longer to process and it takes longer for everything to be verified by the blockchain that's a new word now. We're just bringing up blockchain. Yeah, it's, it's funny. So it's part of my job. You know, um, I work at a university that we deal in new technologies every day. And so one of the buzzwords is always blockchain. You know, so we're, whenever we look at inventions, you know, if we're investors, you know, if it doesn't include the word blockchain. Well, you know, oh, I can't invest in that. <laughs> at least when it comes to the software side. But um, no, that, those are all uh, pretty interesting points. So you, you think that in the long run, Bitcoin is here to stay and is likely to grow. Um, so maybe just the one, oh, I did not say likely to grow, likely to grow. Okay. I said it's here to stay. It might be finding its me. It might be 10,000 might be its, its final resting place. You know, it might become more stable around 10,000. It might stabilize at 5,000. It may stabilize at a hundred million. I have absolutely no idea where it's going. Um, but I'm worth, I'm willing to take a, some small risks and attempt to profit if it does make a huge move such as to 100,000 or a million or 100 million. So just out of curiosity, and I have never pulled up, and I, and I didn't know this before, you know, we started recording this podcast, but do you know what the total market cap is for Bitcoin or any idea? Just out of curiosity. I know the max is 21 million. There would be a maximum 21 million Bitcoins mined. Okay. So so I guess the number I'm asking for is if you, you multiplied the the, the, the the price that Bitcoin is right now, which is approximately you know, almost $10,000, by the total number of available Bitcoin out there, what is that number, do you think? The current market cap, I'm going to cheat and pull up Yahoo Finance, <laughs> is $178 billion U.S. dollars. $178 billion. Actually, to me, that, I mean, that does seem like a large number, but that's smaller than a lot of companies. That's smaller than Amazon's, you know, worth, right? Um, so the circulating supply as of right now is 18 million Bitcoins, and we're going to max out at 21 million Bitcoins in approximately the year 21. 40 something 2143 2148 i believe so it, we ha it's not going to happen we're not going to hit the max supply of bitcoin in our lifetime mm -hmm. so essentially it's not necessarily our problem yeah, i think it's an interesting scale i mean it's 178 billion dollars i mean yeah it's interesting that's an interesting you know data point so uh, i mean there's a lot of lore and um i guess interesting stories about bitcoin you know we, we talked about our initial experiences you know hearing the hype um but I've heard of, you know, there's been some, throughout history, there's been some, um, you know, problems with, uh, I guess, 
you know, people hacking into Bitcoin wallets and stealing Bitcoin, some exchanges, you know, that kind of went insolvent that didn't let people take their money out. And of course, there's the founder who has his own myth and lore about it. I mean, I think those are some maybe the, just the, the interesting history. I'm sure the U.S. dollar has some his, interesting history, too. But I mean, Bitcoin itself, I think there's a legend behind it as well. Bitcoin has been used for a lot of illegal activity. Um, it was the preferred method of it was preferred medium of exchange on the Silk Road, which is a very big deal uh, about uh, half a decade ago or so where people were able to buy drugs and weapons and all sorts of things online and uh, with, you know, a lot of animate anonymousness <laughs> anonymity. <laughs> so there is that, but if you actually look at it, there has been a lot more theft of U.S. dollars over the course of human history, a lot more, or not even course of human history, but over the course of, you know, our United States, there's been a lot more theft of gold over the course of human history where bitcoin itself the actual blockchain has never been hacked so i think that's important to note that the blockchain has never been hacked people have lost their wallet keys which is like this very crazy 16 digit code that you know it's it doesn't make any sense there's no way to actually remember it i've heard like there's different ways you know people like carve it into <laughs> They carve it into a bench or underneath a floorboard or things of that nature. And then, you know, there's um, there's places that you can store your Bitcoin where you can log in with a username and a password where they hold that code for you. And those codes have been hacked on third-party websites, essentially. But the actual blockchain has not been hacked. Um, do we know, have we talked about what a blockchain is? Yeah, do you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's this mysterious word that gets thrown around a lot. You talk about ledgers and blockchain. I, I'm sure I've heard this, you know, in some seminars before, but it, you know, it's one of those things that kind of goes in one, you know, ear and out the other, but enlighten me, Michael. I think you know the answer. <laughs> All right, so blockchain is essentially, there's a couple of ways to describe it, but it's basically, it's basically there's no centralized ledger. If you bank at Bank of America, Let's say you deposit $100 today. Bank of America has one main general ledger that says Brian deposited $100. So now Brian has $100 in his account. Now, if hackers were to go in tonight while Brian slept and take away $100, we'd wake up in the morning, that one main general ledger would have been changed and show that Brian no longer now has $0. And these, these hackers would now have $100, right? So they would they would be able to take it and Bank of America would go back and they would check their general ledger and they would say, well, we see you had $100, but now you don't have $100. So the $100 now belongs to somebody else. Or even if they were really good hackers, they were actually able to delete the transaction and show that you never deposit $100. Bank of America would go to their one general ledger and say, you never had $100 here. So sorry, it's not, not our problem where um, blockchain is essentially a decentralized ledger where every single uh, ledger out there, everyone that is mining Bitcoin, this is a new term too, Bitcoin miners. So they're out there, there's these really complex computers that do consume a lot of electricity and they are solving complicated math problems, all right? If you really wanted to, I believe you could solve these problems longhand, but by the time you solved it, You'd be on, they'd already be on to the next one. So there's all these computers out there right now, and they are competing to see who can, well, they're all trying to solve the same problem. Now, once they solve the problem, 
you've essentially verified the blockchain, which means you have verified everything on there is correct. So if somebody wanted to change something that was on the blockchain, they would have to change 51% of the computers that are out there, which that is extremely difficult to do. The US government doesn't have enough computing power, the Chinese government doesn't have enough computer power, the Russian, the Russian government, you know, with all their complicated stuff, does not have enough computing power to go and take over 51% of the computers out there that are mining Bitcoin actively. So basically all these computers, and anyone can do it, you could go buy a computer, um, and hook it up to the blockchain network and start solving, and then you would be entered in to win some Bitcoin, which is essentially how it is. So the blockchain rewards its miners. Uh, it rewards its miners. Basically, every computer that solves the blockchain, that solves this com complicated mathematical problem, gets essentially a raffle ticket. And then every every so often, I think it's 12 minutes, every 12 minutes, they award one block. Right now, the block is 12 and a half Bitcoins. So if you go and you solve the problem with your computer and you get randomly selected from this pool of everybody else that solved the problem too, you could be awarded 12 and a half Bitcoins. Now, 12 and a half Bitcoins times $10,000, that's a hefty sum, right? That's $125,000. It's a chunk of change, essentially, right now. So it's well worth people's efforts to try to solve these problems and get into this pool. You know, I think there's more people playing the, you know, the Powerballs and the pick threes oh, and the pick sure, fives. For sure. Right? Yeah, just North Carolina alone. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But your odds of actually winning as an individual are pretty low. So what most Bitcoin miners do is they join a pool and there's only a few pools out there. But what happens is when the pool wins, so if you and 100,000 other computers join together and create a pool, you know, maybe you guys win one out of 10, but then you divide that 12 and a half Bitcoins into, you know, the 100,000 computers that are out there. So that's essentially how Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining work. Um, that's the down and dirty version. I've heard, I've heard there's, you know, there's, sometimes hackers will put Bitcoin miners on people's computers, you know, unbeknownst to them. And then your, your computer's like using all this computing power and you're Bitcoin mining for some Russian dude, you know. And Yes, that, <laughs> that, that's real. That is actually real. People can do that. They can hack into your computer. Um, but that all that comes down to is just, you know, good, um, you know, keeping keeping your your antivirus up to date, not opening emails, not downloading things that you don't recognize, not opening emails from people you don't know. That all or, comes or down torrenting to torrenting some stuff, perhaps, you know, I heard some of those BitTorrents, <laughs> <laughs> the clients so, are, are actually Bitcoin miners built in. But, yeah, so that's essentially what it really comes down to is just good general, you know, computer and Internet awareness. Um, Bitcoin is no more dangerous than anything else as far as I'm concerned. If you are, if you're minding your P's and Q's, if you're not interacting with, you know, Russian hackers or, you know, Zimbabwe yeah. princes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The money itself is not the evil thing. But the ways to acquire it may necessarily may be unethical. Just how you acquire U.S. dollars may, there may be ethical ways to acquire U.S. dollars and unethical ways of doing that too. There was a, it was really interesting um, case that was brought by the U.S. government against several early Bitcoin people. Um, banking on Bitcoin, I'll throw that out there, is a really good uh, documentary about it. Okay. It it changes hands. Sometimes it's on Netflix, sometimes it's on Amazon, but just search for it on Google, search for banking on Bitcoin and watch that. It's a couple years old. It was done, I think it might have been done before the 2017 major run-up. But 
you know, some of these guys got major prison time. And, and you know, in the argument, one of them used against one of, you know, for, for having Bitcoin, for, for dealing in Bitcoin, for, you know, facilitating Bitcoin transactions. They were treating them like money launderers. And one of the interesting um, arguments against, uh, against, you know, one of the cases, the guy said, well, you know, Bank of America and Citigroup, they have ATMs on every corner. And they full well know that some of those ATMs, people are going to go and withdraw cash, and they're going to use that cash to buy drugs and guns, right? There's Nobody can deny that the ATMs on all of our city corners, people go and withdraw money and use it for illicit things, right? Yeah, I mean, so uh, that's the interesting point. I mean, I've heard there's other podcasts, I've, I think Freakonomics covered this. They had um, you know, cash itself, the actual physical cash. Um, you know, that's often, you know, we credit card transactions you can track, right? Just like you're saying, you know, credit cards, if I buy something, there's a record at a bank, right? But if I take cash out of an ATM, all of a sudden there's not a record of where that cash is changing hands, right? And all of a sudden, if you go and buy drugs with that cash, they can launder the money, right? They can, you know, the, the drug people can use that money and then, you know, pay for some other service and all of a sudden that, that money gets cleaned, right? So, yeah, as to, as to your point, I think it's very fair. And I think sometimes banks probably do know that some of their cash is, you know, if I'm moving a bunch of ATMs, you know, and you know, Sinaloa, Mexico, you know, I wonder what those ATMs are going to be, you know, used for. They're accepting those deposits. I mean, if you have, if you have ATMs on the streets of New York City, you think people in New York City don't smoke weed and snort coke? Oh, I'm sure. sorry. People do drugs and people buy drugs with cash. There's no denying it. I'm sorry. I can't, I, if you, if you are out there right now and want to deny this fact, please contact they're us. Not, they're I, not, are they buying their drugs with their credit cards? <laughs> that's, I don't think that, getting those reward points, you know, that's, that's a different question. I, no, to, to your point, I mean, the U.S. government, um, I think actually recently I heard that, you know, they, in some of their um, investigations, they'll end up with Bitcoin. They'll seize the Bitcoin, right? And then they'll actually auction off the Bitcoin back to the public. And that's a, kind of an interesting thing the government's doing to kind of, you know, generate the revenue off of that. Well, they look at it as an asset, you know, if you, if they, um, if they confiscate, uh, an Escalade or a Hummer off of a drug dealer, they typically get the fingerprints off of it, do their whole forensic thing. And then they auction the product off afterwards. That way they're not paying storage and they can actually generate, yeah, generate a little bit of revenue to help cover the cost of the, you know, investigation and everything else. And, you know, obviously, you know, you don't want to put the taxpayers on the hook for storage of, you know, I mean, if we kept, if we stored every drug dealer's car that we've confiscated over the past 50 years, we just have this huge, we'd have huge yeah, lots yeah. everywhere full of drug dealer cars that the U.S. taxpayers would be on the hook to pay storage on. So, so I wonder, so, you know, I think what the government does is they do auction off this material, those materials, and right, and sometimes, you know, you get this Hummer at a discount, right, because it's some, you know, drug money to hunt Hummer, right? But I wonder if, if they auction off the Bitcoin that they've seized, I wonder if that will go into the marketplace at market rate, or if there'll be some small discount, you know, I, I wonder what the result of that auction will be just as a thought experiment. It's supply and demand. Uh, everything is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. So essentially, if they were to auction off a large portion, let's say a million Bitcoins or a hundred thousand Bitcoins, that would probably drive the price down because there'd be a hundred thousand bitcoins coming on the market all of a sudden. Oh, flood the market, yeah. On the sell side of things, that's more supply than demand. All of a sudden, will cause the price to go down. Uh, me and Brian just spent a couple of minutes looking up the volume of Bitcoin, and 
every website seems to have a vastly different number, like huge differentiation. So I actually don't know the volume of Bitcoin that is being traded each day. And so we can't we can't speak intelligently of that. But that's also worth noting. That's one of the disadvantages of Bitcoin, um, because our stock market is so well regulated. You can usually bounce between three and four exchanges, maybe or three and four brokerages and see that Tesla traded so many million shares today. And usually those numbers are pretty close. So you can have a, a fair degree of confidence that it traded, you know, one million shares today or 10 million shares today, you know, plus or minus, you know, maybe one or five percent. Um, but Bitcoin the, the the numbers we were coming up with were so vastly different from a couple of thousand to several million to several billion. We can't actually speak intelligently about the now, true volume of Bitcoin that is being traded. I'm sure if we did some more research, we could probably track down the number. But suffice to say, I think um, you know Bitcoin. It is it is liquid though. I mean, it's not like an illiquid market. So there are transactions occurring. There seem to be a lot of transactions occurring. So I think I think that that's that's one point to take. So. Maybe just going back to the lore of Bitcoin. So there's this guy named Satoshi. I don't think we, I don't think we talked about Satoshi. We have not talked about Satoshi. So, so tell me, what, what are your thoughts about Satoshi? Who is Satoshi? Maybe Satoshi is Craig Wright. Craig Wright. He's not, not a Japanese dude. Not a Japanese dude at all. So they found one guy whose actual name is Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, and as soon as we talked to him, like, yeah, this is not the guy. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know what's going on. He's like, what? He's, like, he's a really good actor, you know. He's like, I got, I have twenty five dollars, guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or a few, yeah. yeah the government just... got to him, you know. They <laughs> took out his brain, man. This is this reads cases, and there's a man named Craig Wright that has been claiming to be uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, um, but. Go back and watch that banking on Bitcoin. His name is not readily brought up as one of the potential people that could have brought Bitcoin to be. Bitcoin is not the first attempt at a digital currency. Um, you know, things such as PayPal actually led to the creation of Bitcoin. Like there's all these little aspects, all these little things that have been tried. These uh, programmers, people that understand programming, understand digital uh, transactions, they understand money, like, there was basically like a dozen people that I could, could potentially be, um, but Satoki, Satoshi Nakamoto is not anybody, is not the creator's real name, we know that for a fact, uh, Craig Wright, I don't buy it, you know, he's got too many holes in his story. So, so what's the story of Craig Wright? So enlighten me. I, I don't really know Craig Wright. Craig Wright claims to be, and he keeps wanting, like he keeps asking these courts to, you know, to allow him to access this money that's been frozen up based on, you know, any, but, and I've, I've not studied him a whole lot because his story just doesn't seem credible, but he's like the most, he's the one that right now is claiming to be. Satoshi, but everyone that actually knows things about Bitcoin and knows what would be required to be Satoshi says there's just absolutely no way Craig Is Wright. Is it possible that Satoshi it could be like multiple people? Could it be, you know, an organization? I guess theoretically it could. At the end of the day, nobody actually knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. 
Nobody knows. And he could be dead, probably. No, he could. Because the, the wallet, you know, is not He could it. be dead. He could be dead, yeah. The original, one of the original wallets is holding several millions, if not billions of dollars worth of Bitcoin. And it hasn't moved. And we, we don't we don't know what's going on with it. It may be somebody that's just sitting there on their high horse waiting to sell. We, we have absolutely no idea who the true founder is of Bitcoin, who satoshi nakamoto actually is um but it's a name it's 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 folklore at this point it's legend it's part of the appeal right (laughs) it is part of the appeal um but at the same time you know the blockchain is solid the blockchain has never been hacked so i mean in a way you know him being anonymous or legendary you know you know what those new when they had those icos in the the past you know there was a group that stood to profit you knew that some group was going to profit off of this exchange you know or exactly money whoever the people that created r2b2 they never actually put it onto a free exchange which tells me that they just kept everybody's money they just kept everybody's money and i i put in 500 dollars. you know what you can sue those people find out who those people are michael i don't even know what continent they're (laughs) on i don't you know, they had they had traces through Europe, through the United States. They had ceases to desist in uh, in Texas. They had uh, they were trans they were making wireless tra- or they were making wired transactions in, through Europe. Like there's, I'm sorry, that I know that money's gone. It's not worth my effort to find it. But I also bought in at a rather low level. A lot of people bought after me at much higher levels too, and a lot of people bought. So it tells me that. Some people made a lot of money. This whoever Satoshi is, he's never cashed out. He hasn't cashed out. Maybe he's made a few dollars. You know, if given if he held two bitcoins in a separate wallet and cashed out at the top, you know, he cashed out forty thousand dollars, which you know, nice yeah. took a change. Maybe he bought a new car. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just it's super interesting. The legend, yeah. Satoshi. Man. Satoshi, yeah. So nobody actually knows who Satoshi is. We know that Satoshi Nakamoto is the founder of Bitcoin. He wrote the white paper on it. He wrote all the code, which the code is just super complex. You have to be incredibly intelligent and like just so much focus and intelligence to be able to put together something like a blockchain. And, you know, I think this blockchain right now, I think that's, that's one of the key factors that's going to come out of this. All right, maybe I'm dead wrong. Maybe Bitcoin goes to zero tomorrow. All right, I'm going to, you know, I'll be out a couple hundred bucks. So be it. But blockchain, if nothing else, blockchain is here to stay. Because blockchain, that multiple ledgers on multiple computers, is, it makes it, I won't say unhackable, because, you know, the Titanic was unsinkable, but it makes it much harder to hack. It makes it much harder to actually compromise this information. I think there's a huge potential in financial markets and even in healthcare markets look at imagine if your healthcare record was on a blockchain and so instead of you having to always transfer all of your you know pharmaceutical records um plus dental records plus you know i don't know hip surgery records all your different records from all these different doctors that you've had over the years um, you have to, you, you have to, and it's on you to gather all that information up and then take it to the next doctor you're going to go to. Imagine if that was on one central ledger, not one central ledger, but one common ledger that a bunch of people were taking information on and or taking information off of and putting new information on, and they were all verifying it. Yeah. I, think, I think for those kind of records, that'd be a point. I mean, so, so 
interesting as someone in the legal profession. You know, they think of blockchain, you know, it could be very useful in, you know, recording deeds or title, you know, to housing in the housing market, especially in mortgage when you are exchanging all those documents back and forth. Or even, you know, just simple, you know, when you're shipping goods from one part of the world to the other, you know, when the, when does the ship have it? When does the, the port have it? When does the company take possession of it? So if you can record all those steps and have absolute faith and accuracy in all those steps, you know, you really, you can actually cut out a lot of insurance money and waste in, in the process. Um, so I think blockchain itself is a, is a, is a technology. Yeah. I mean, we're probably at the very infancy of that, you know, and it could be much more widely adopted for sure. Um, no, I mean, that, those are, those are really, uh, really interesting and promising potential. So do you hold, do you hold any cryptocurrencies awesome. at the moment? Brian? So I'll tell you my story. So I, I won't name the, the exchange, but I, you know, during the craze, I was like, I'm going to go buy some, I'm going to go do this. I'm gung ho about this. And my friends are doing it. And I still have friends to this day that hold cryptos. There's one of my friends, he mined a garlic coin, which was a Reddit cryptocurrency. <laughs> and it was like, it, it peaked at $50. And I'm sure it's worthless now, but, um, but no, I have, I, so I, I have plenty of friends who are doing it. And I was thinking about doing it. So I set up a wallet and then I realized it's going to be $10 to trade. And I know that doesn't seem like a lot of money, but you know, if you can trade, you know, stock trades, you know, I think I had an account that you could do $7 a trade, you're $10 in and then $10 out. And if you're trading, you know, again, a fractional Bitcoin, it didn't seem worth it to me to lose like, you know, a decent percent each way. And I get it if you're a buy and hold person, and I don't know if I was going to be a buy and hold person, but I didn't, I didn't like that fact about it at the time. Now I'm sure there are ways to get Bitcoin at, you know, um, you know, with smaller commissions nowadays. And maybe, maybe I'll, I would go do it. But maybe, maybe this is the potential of, you know, Bitcoin in the future. You know, if, if some, you know, ETF started doing Bitcoin or there's some, you know, ticker symbol that I could buy, you know, through my Fidelity account, if Fidelity just would let me buy Bitcoin without any exchange traded, you know, fees, I might do that. But, you know, as it stands today, I'm kind of not into crypto just because I don't, I don't like paying that fee, I guess. That's, that's what's stopping me. Well, fair enough. That obviously provides one barrier, barrier to entry right there but bitcoin like i said I, I still think bitcoin's here to stay uh it's not for everybody and it doesn't necessarily have a great appeal to everybody especially in the united states but the united states there is i believe the population counts in the 320 million mm -hmm. uh area right now uh, there's over 7 billion people on this planet so 320 million is really a drop in the bucket to the 7 billion people that are actually on this planet. Um, and if that, um, you know, and if blockchain and Bitcoin appears, you know, appeals to 10% of them, 5% of them, it still has absolute huge, huge stain power. And that's why I'm willing to take a small risk. So full disclosure, I am currently long Bitcoin. I think I mentioned this earlier, I'm long Bitcoin. I have one tenth of a Bitcoin. I did my normal risk of $150, so I maxed out my risk. I usually risk somewhere between $100 and $150 per trade. On this one, I maxed out my risk, went a full $150. As Bitcoin took out the level of $7,900 and bounced and, and broke above its 50-day moving average, so I'm getting very technical, I know, but it broke above its 50-day moving average and took out the level $7,900 just a couple weeks ago. I went ahead and bought one-tenth of a Bitcoin and I decided I will sell it at $6,400. So one-tenth of a Bitcoin, I put $790 into it. And with $150 risk, 
That meant if it broke below $6,400, I would cash out my $640 for a $150 loss. That was what I was able to risk, or that was what I was willing to risk on this transaction. And right now, my stop is actually at 9,000, so I'm guaranteed to profit. Um, but if it breaks below 9,000, then I'm I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna sell, and I'm gonna look for a uh, I'm gonna look for another place to potentially buy because I I do believe that Bitcoin's here for the future. I I believe it's gonna be here for you know forever. So 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 just to say it, even though I don't own Bitcoin, I if I, I would say I agree with your position. I, I think long term, as a long position, I think Bitcoin that I would I would place that dead. I think I mean I just again there's other stocks that I, I have a long position on that I have maybe more faith. I think there's more upside, but I think Bitcoin long term. I think if I were to if I had to put you know one if I had to make a bet either it's going to go down or go up. I think long term I think it's it's an up. Um, and and why do I think that to, to a lot of your points that we discussed the fundamentals you know as a currency. But I also think you know just in terms of market cap again it's 178 billion dollar market cap right now. I mean for perspective you know as we're recording now you know. Apple's $1.4 trillion, right? Google's $1.1 trillion. You know, this is about, you know, this is, you know, a quarter of those companies, right? In terms of, you know, amount of value there. So, I mean, if you're looking at, you know, the whole world and a whole potential of exchange, right? Is that worth, you know, you know, a fourth of a Google right now? I think it has room to maybe become a half a Google, you know, in terms of things. So I think at least that's where maybe my perspective, my head headspace would be at in terms of a, of, of at least just Bitcoin itself. The one thing about Bitcoin that I really think is worth noting is the supply is capped at 21 million Bitcoins. That's it. Once 21 million Bitcoins are mined, which will happen in the year 21-something, long after we're all dead, that's it. There will be no more Bitcoin ever mined. As opposed to the U.S. dollar. Every time we need more U.S. dollar, the Treasury prints more. The Federal Reserve is currently involved in this massive, um, basically, liquidity, liquidity injection scheme, where they're just injecting massive, I'm talking billions of dollars worth of liquidity into the stock market right now to try to keep everything moving, to try to keep our economic expansion going. There is no such thing with Bitcoin. Like, eventually... After you print so many hundred dollar bills, they all become worthless, right? This happened in Germany during World War II. Um, the British pound got devalued. Right now, you know, in the past couple of years, we saw Venezuela, their currency get massively devalued. The Chinese government devalues their currency on a regular basis. It doesn't seem logical or reasonable for right now in 2020 for the U.S. government to do the same thing, but in five years, in 10 years, in 20 years, there's nothing actually preventing it from happening. History repeats itself. There is nothing new under the sun. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. I think you know, over time, the U.S. dollar, I mean, typically the U.S. dollar, there's, there's a certain level of inflation, right? And that... That level of inflation encourages people to put their money in other investments just rather than sitting on cash. Um, well, as Bitcoin, there's no, I mean, will Bitcoin, you know, suffer from inflation? Well, there's, you're right, there's a cap number, there's a cap amount of Bitcoin. So it, it, there's that inflationary effect that it won't suffer from that. Um, but again, there, you're, you're saying, you know, that doesn't mean Bitcoin's guaranteed to go up. It's just, you know, um, that's one factor that's not in play uh, with Bitcoin.
that inflationary effect. There's no central bank printing out more Bitcoin, and they can't—they're not printing out at, at a dime's notice. They're going to, you know, switch. Um, you know, those are all fair points. So I think we talked a lot about Bitcoin today and a lot about cryptocurrency, and I'm sure we could talk a lot more. We absolutely could. If you're if you are interested in learning more about this, you know, do some reading. There's plenty of good books out there on Amazon. You know, just just Google blockchain or Bitcoin, and you'll find plenty of sources. Um, you know, if you're if you're just bored, if you're really bored on a Friday night, check out Banking on Bitcoin. It's a great documentary. You'll totally nerd out. It, it gives you a lot of good insight into the development of it, who could possibly be behind it, and you know why why it is where it is today. All good resources. So that about wraps things up. But as our final segment, we always like to ask a fun question. So I'm gonna ask Michael this fun question of the day. So Michael, please tell me. What was your first job, and and what and what did you like about it, and what did you dislike about it? My my very first job. Your very first very job. first job. Pa- paid job, but paid, paid job, job that I brought in. Yeah, you got a paycheck. You know, you got to pay taxes on. That I brought in U.S. dollars on. Yes, correct. I delivered papers. Oh, you got a paper route. I had a, I had You're a like paper <laughs> Yes, I'm exactly <laughs> like Warren Buffett. Thank you for that. <laughs> so at 11 years old which was the youngest you were allowed to have a paper out, I delivered papers for the Olean Times-Herald. Did you have a bicycle? Did you bring in a car? Were you I drove foot? it. I, I walked it on foot, you know, because there was no point of getting on a bike and getting off a bike. Yeah, you know, I was like, like exactly, paper. you know, never did that. Either. No, and, there, and that, that's the thing. You don't, you know, just throw it. Okay, we provided a much higher level of customer service. I mean, I had those doorbell cameras back then, but, you know, I'm glad that you, you know, are conscious, you know, very good paper delivery. So we actually had, I actually created kind of a Google, not a Google spreadsheet. Google didn't exist at the time. It was an Excel spreadsheet where I would say, this is where the paper goes. Some people liked it in those rings underneath the mailbox. Some people liked it in their door. Oh, okay. Other people liked it set on their porch. So there was. It was actually an array. Like, people liked their paper in different spots. So now I'm curious. Did, were you paid, like, an hourly wage? Or, like, it was just, like, you, it was, like, a fixed fee. You get through this many homes delivered. You get a certain I, amount. I remember? I believe I got money per paper. Okay. So I think they sold the papers to me at, um, I'm guessing here. It's, like, they sold the papers to me at 16 cents a piece. And I was able to technically, the way they orchestrated it, they held, you know, the paper actually did a lot of the accounting for me. But they essentially sold the papers to me at like 16 cents a piece. And I turned around and sold them at like 30 cents a piece. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, and so, and I kept the difference. Um, and given a lot of people paid the paper directly, and other people I actually had to go and collect from. I had a little punch card and everything. Oh, yeah, wow. like, like I punched them, you know. Like, I was actually, I didn't mind collecting so much because you, the people you collected from, Give you a little tip for the people that uh, you didn't collect from that paid the paper directly. They never felt the need <laughs> to tip me. Um, but I ended up actually expanding. Believe it or not, I expanded my route. Right, and I ended up with three paper routes by the time I uh, by the time I hit sixteen. So it's like every morning, every okay. single day. Well, no, it was afternoon. Uh, it was afternoon newspapers okay. during the week. It was morning newspapers on the weekend. So Saturday and Sunday, I got a morning newspaper that had to be delivered by eight a.m. And, uh, so how and, early did you have to get up for that? Do you remember? Yeah, I got up around uh, I got up around six a.m. and uh, you know, so I I basically go out by six a.m. because they 
the the guy that delivered the newspapers to my house, he had to have them to my house by 6 a.m. And then I would have to have them all delivered by 8 a.m. So it gave me basically a two-hour window. And, you know, and I was in upstate New York, all right? Let me, I'm not... This is cold. You're like, oh, yeah. This isn't during the snow, all right? The sleet, the, you name it. I'm an 11-year-old. I hope they have some kind of insurance for you. <laughs> and so, so I did all right. You know, I made, uh, at the beginning, I was thinking I was making like $26 a week. I believe at the end, I was making close to like $80 a week with my three routes. Yeah, you know. So, so what did you do with all this, all this money, young Michael Johnson? I bought Dr. Pepper and Mounds. <laughs> not, not High the, roller there, man. Not, not the stock. Like, I literally stopped and got a candy bar to a soda on the way home. Um, and, and um, you know, my family wasn't in the best shape at the time, so I actually, a lot of my money went and contributed to uh, to keep my family afloat. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. It was. I didn't realize at the time. I thought I thought everybody did that, but yeah. You're you know, a good kid. You're a yeah. good kid. Good kid, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I would say so. I'm thinking about my first job. Yes, I need to know what is Brian's. Not, fir- what not... is Brian's first job from? Can- Brian's from Kansas City, by the way, who just won a Super Bowl or yes. Super Bowl there, Kansas City, Kansas, right? Kansas City, Kansas. Although the teams in Kansas City, Missouri, but the Kansans still love them. Okay, so okay, because our president he thought they were in Kansas. I think well, Kansas City's not in Kansas. No, there's parts in Kansas. With the, there's a Kansas City, Kansas. There's a Kansas City, Missouri. Okay. There's a state line road. There's literally a state line road you can drive in. Okay. That's so it. our president was right. So everyone, yeah. everyone that said our president is an idiot is is dead wrong. I mean, he's a, a, he's a genius. It's a matter of opinion, but the, the sports team, the, the stadium is located on the Missourian side. There's plenty of Kansans who love the Chiefs. We all love the Chiefs. Okay. Everyone in Kansas might as well include Missouri and like Iowa. But no, my first summer job was in Iowa, where my grandparents lived. It was a summer job. Not nearly as exciting years, but I worked at a senior living center. And what we did was basically during lunch and breakfast, I was kind of a waiter. And this this is a skill that taught me. So they didn't have menus, but like I would like they'd have daily specials. And I would have to tell the people the daily specials. And then I wasn't allowed to or write write down what they wanted to eat. I have to keep it in my head. And then I would just go from one table, get all the orders, and tell tell them what was the specials, what they wanted. They could customize it. I'd go back to the, the kitchen. I tell them what the what they people wanted at that table. They they played it for me. I go back out. I set it down at the table there. So I had to have some memorization skills, some customer service skills. And then afterwards, you know, I did all the tables and then we'd vacuum. And so it was good. The good times, you know. Had a good summer job. And I think my, my family was a little better off. So I got to use that money to like buy clothes and stuff like that. And I remember this. My dad actually is like, oh, you you know, you earned this sum of money. You know, I will take my money and I'll put that money like offset it. For a Roth IRA for you. So I got my Roth IRA started when I was like, whatever, teenage year, you know. And that's, so That's amazing. You had yeah. a Roth IRA <laughs> as a teenager. Yeah, I know. Whatever a few hundred dollars I made. It was, it was in some S&P index fund, you know, and it grew tremendously. So that, that's that's my story for my first summer job. Well, that's, I, yeah. That's great. No, that's great. I, you know, it took me years to actually wait tables, and I never managed to uh, ever take an order without writing it down. So, kudos. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, there were a few messages. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't perfect. <laughs> well, anyways, I think we'll call it there. Uh, we'll, ho- we'll hope to have you next time. Yes, absolutely, Brian. Thanks. Uh, great questions. I really appreciated talking about Bitcoin today. Um, to our listeners, if you have questions. Uh, hit us up, let us know, comment, ask questions, and um, and we'll address them on the next podcast. We look forward to it. All right. See you next time. Trading for Keeps, this is Brian. 
And this is Michael. 